It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are talking to author Michael Kazin about his book, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Michael. Let's talk about the Democratic Party because uh, it's a big tent. uh, But that also means, you know, sometimes it's not, you know, we're not like the 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 Democratic Party is not like the Republican Party um, in in so many different ways. And my first question actually is um, about how in this particular moment we should sort of set this up. Like, how should we think about the history of the Democratic Party? As it relates to right now, what can we glean from that history that would help us understand what's happening right now within sure. the Democratic Party? Sure. Well, the title of my book is What It Took to Win. Um, and in the end, if you have a party that can't win elections, you know, you haven't got much of a party. So the question is how the Democrats put together a winning coalition. And you know, they have a very broad coalition, you know, they have LGBT folks, you know, African-Americans, uh, most Latinos, most Asian-Americans, a lot of young people, you know, um, a lot of, uh, you know, well-paid academic types like me, um, and a lot of poor people as well. Um, but what they don't have really is a clear message, I think, um, of a program that will help majority of people. Now, the Build Back Better program, you know, in its different parts, can do some of that, but it hasn't really gotten to people. And there's not really a movement um, for economic justice, uh, you might say, which uh, crosses racial lines, crosses lines between immigrants and native born people, crosses lines between people on basis of gender um, or sexual orientation. And I think that's really what has brought Democrats success in the past with all the problems uh, that they've had in the past and uh, many people they've left out in the past. And um, that's what I think the Democrats need uh, to become a dominant force in American politics again. What period of our history should we be looking at to say this was when we got it right? Because Democrats have always been like the tent has never been bigger than it is now because inclusivity means more people than it used to. Right. But Democrats have, have, you know, since the splitting of since the, the civil rights era, they, they have had the bigger tent. Like, is, has there been a moment when they were able to solidify to to talk about their their agenda in a way that resonated with every faction of that tent is there some part of history that we can look back to see like yes that's when we got it right well there was a moment <laughs> uh, in, uh, in the mid-1960s when medicare was passed when the voting rights act was passed when uh, the old racist uh, uh immigration quarters were scrapped 1965 open housing bill was passed um clean water act um Clean Air Act passed around that same time as well. Um, and that's because Democrats had a huge majority. They won in 1964. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson won this landslide election against the conservative Republican Barry Goldwater, who opposed the Civil Rights Act, among other things. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know, as you said before in your opening, it's really difficult, you know, to satisfy everybody in in a more in a, such a inclusive party. I mean, the, the Republicans have an easier time in some ways because they are predominantly a party of white Christians, you know, and um, and Democrats are more diverse, and that 
means that it's more difficult to um, have one common message. And you don't have to have one common message so much as, you know, one message that um, unites people and, and other folks can talk about other issues as well. But um, so really that was the only time. And since then, since late 1960s and the Vietnam War has something to do with that, of course, and the backlash against the Black Freedom Movement and against feminism has something to do with it too. Since then, we really had no majority party in this country. Republicans have, have, have been dominant for a while, Democrats for a while, but really we've been in this sort of, you know, uh, sort of bipartisan uh, conflict uh, for a long time now. I mean, is there a way to get to a place where not because we talk about all the time on the show that and we talked about this leading up to the 2020 elections, you know, um, even in the context of COVID, like there are more of us and us, meaning people who are taking this seriously, listening to the science, trying to keep themselves safe, wearing masks, socially distanced, following. There are more people following the directions than people that are not following the directions, people that are protesting those directions. Um, but since we're the ones in our houses or we're the ones sort of locking down and trying to stay safe and we're, you know, we're not yelling about it. It doesn't, it, it, you, you miss the fact that there are more of those people than the people that mm -hmm. are loudly um, denouncing mask wearing. I mean, how do we make it more clear that there are more people who are pro-democracy? There are more people who um, are not that, in the Republican white Christian mold, particularly because of the demographic shifts happening in the country right now. Um, and, and lean into the fact that we are the majority, not necessarily the majority party, not everybody's going to self-identify, but in terms of like, want to move forward towards like a progressive <laughs> place versus whatever the other option is. Um, how do we start to do that? Uh, there's no uh, alternative to organizing, building movements. Uh, I mean, look at what people did when Trump was president. You know, the the um, resistance, call it what you will, did unite a lot of people. You know, Democrats and some you know, some Republicans too. You know, who were who, who disgusted about what Trump was doing to their party. Um, and you know, it turned out you know the largest, by far the largest popular vote against. Trump uh, against Republicans in American history, 81 million voters. Um, and um, but that's just negative. That's let's get this awful guy out of office, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I mean, what would happen, for example, you know, if you had uh, big demonstrations uh, calling for um, every 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 kid uh, to be, you know, uh, be able to go to pre-kindergarten, you know, for free or or child care, you know, um, uh, um, for, for, every, for every American uh, parent uh, uh, and their kids, um, or expanding Medicare, you know, uh, I mean, for, for positive programs. And, and part of it, too, I think, is one of the more positive things I think is happening right now is that, especially young people and often in tech industries are forming unions and, and, and talking about, you know, economic justice uh, as well as racial justice and gender justice. And I think um, that's also positive. I mean, one of the things I argue in the book that, that made the Democrats the majority party in the 1930s was a labor movement uh, growing and right. for the first time an interracial labor movement, which had not been before uh, for the most part. Um, and that undergirded Democrats becoming the majority party in states like Pennsylvania and uh, Michigan, where, where Republicans since the Civil War have been the majority party. So really, you got to be on the streets, not just in the streets, but organizing smart uh, in states and in cities and uh, the kind of thing that, you know, in some ways the Tea Party did in a more limited way against Obamacare and against the, uh, the stimulus back uh, during the Great Recession. 
So as we're talking about issues of economic justice, you have a phrase that you use in your book called moral capitalism, which reminds me a little bit of the lines that we heard from Joe Biden during the State of the Union, that capitalism without competition is exploitation. Um, can you talk a little bit about what moral capitalism means? How, how close are we to understanding that message and how important is that to our continued success? Sure, I think it's real important. I mean, look, most... Um, Americans don't think capitalism, you know, by its very nature is a bad thing. They want to get ahead. They want to make more money. You know, they want to set up businesses very often of their own. Um, but I think most, what most Americans have wanted, and the Democratic Party has been able to talk to this when it's been successful uh, in, many, in many times, is uh, they want it to be a fairer capitalism. For example, in the 19th century, um, as the as, as, uh, U.S. was becoming an industrial country, the big issue was big business big banks crushing smaller businesses, um, big banks investing with their friends and, and uh, letting small businesses starve uh, for, uh, for loans. And, uh, and so that was a, uh, a central message Democratic Party was smash monopolies, you know. Uh, then the 20th century, um, it's been much more, at least up until the 70s and 80s or so, you know, let's support working people, higher wages, better benefits, enable them to uh, organize labor, labor unions when they want to, just basically a fairer deal uh, for, uh, for, for wage earners. And, and a lot of the, uh, the programs that now are very much uh, accepted by everybody, you know, Social Security, Medicare, the, the, the GI Bill also, you know, uh, were, were sold as programs to help, you know, ordinary working people. Um, so that's what I mean by moral capitalism. That is a capitalism which is as, as far as possible, you know, uh, is regulated uh, by uh, the government um, to, to help help ordinary people defined in, in different ways and to help as many people as possible with universal programs, not just programs um, to help, you know, one group within the population. As important as those programs often are, of course, but um, you don't, that's not a winning strategy to say we want to help, you know, women uh, primarily or African-Americans primarily. Um, it's important, but it's not uh, itself a winning strategy. I think one of the things that was surprising to us even this week during the State of the Union is Joe Biden sitting there and saying capitalism without competition is exploitation because that was something that, you know, you, you, you definitely hear at maybe a protest, um, yeah, yeah. you know, with, with labor, with Wall labor, Street la labor <laughs> yeah, labor folks or, you know, an Occupy um, event or something like that. Um, but I also think that we are the pandemic just like I think a lot of people are like, wait, how come the billionaires are making all this money and like the economy is like in free fall, but they're like making hand over fist right in this in this, um, you know, intersecting dystopia and pandemic we're living through. Um, and I think it exposed a lot of the ways in which the systems um, are, are exploitative to workers and allow the people who are running the companies to just have super yachts and yachts for their satellite so they can watch soccer. I'll let Jeff and, and if you look at, if you look at the <laughs> public opinion polls, you know, across the board, the most popular thing Democrats say is tax the rich more. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, yeah. independence, like independence, like it. Right. And, and uh, even a lot, even like half Republicans uh, are for it, even though, of course, Republicans passed that, that tax bill in 2017 to, to uh, which cut the taxes on the rich. Do you think the pandemic will make it easier to, to sort of lean into this um, this type of argument and, and messaging? 
um, yeah, well, around it, workers and making sure that workers are not exploited and ensuring that billionaires are just not able to make money while their workers are on food stamps. I hope it would, you know, uh, I hope it would. I thought, you know, in the beginning, in 2020, when people talked a lot about essential workers and helping essential workers, and it was clear that some of the people who were worst off in American society were, were getting treated the worst and, and were at the mm-hmm. most risk of getting covered. But again, you got to organize, you know, it can't just happen from the top down. Uh, I mean, we talk so much in politics about what the Democrats are doing, what Biden's doing, what McConnell's doing, what Trump did, et cetera, et cetera. And all that matters, of course. But in the end, if people aren't mobilized to help themselves and to make demands on politicians, nothing much is going to change because the politicians are just keep, you know, keep holding, keep uh, conducting their polls, keep raising money from anybody who will give them money. And, um, you know, politicians are not terrible people by, by and large, some are, uh, but by and large, they just will follow what strategy will help them win, right? Um, win re-election. And, and if a more moderate strategy, not taxing the rich will help them, uh, then they'll follow that strategy. But if people are pushing them and making it very hard for them not to respond to uh, demands to tax the rich more, then uh, they will start to lean that way. Has a, has a more moderate stance ever helped Democrats win in a midterm? I get the sense that like when we try to do the Republican light, we're not going to go super economic populism. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, where, what, whatever it is that we decide to do in those moments, like the 2010s of the world. <laughs> right. um, it doesn't go so well. When we lean straight into they want to shovel all of our money towards corporations and the uber rich, a la 2018, um, we we tend to do well. Like, how are you seeing these lessons being applied in 2022 to these particular midterms? And, and what kind of tact do you think they ought to be taking? Sure. Well, the problem, of course, is when your party's in power, it's much harder to attack <laughs> what, the right. other party's, what the other party's doing. I mean, Democrats won in 2018 because uh, uh, they were not in power and Donald Trump was in power. He wasn't popular. And, you know, unfortunately, the same thing is likely unless something changes to happen this year. Uh, Democrats are almost sure to lose seats and, and at least probably lose control of the house the senate's up in the air but you know i think democrats have to do you know in a much clearer way uh what biden did in some of the better moments of his state of the union address you know he's not he's never going to be uh you know a great orator <laughs> um right. at, 78, at 78 years old he's not going to change you know he's not going to all of a sudden uh you know be obama <laughs> yeah, he's not going to get the charm of obama or the or the eloquence of uh of fdr or you know uh some of the great orators uh, who presidents american history but he could Pretty much clear saying these are three things Democrats are for, you know, um, and we're going to keep pushing them. And they are, I would say, uh, I, he doesn't have to use the term moral capitalism, but I think they are things like taxing the rich more, uh, uh, programs to help families um, uh, across the board. And uh, I would say also um, not necessarily Medicare for all, but moving much towards, you know, covering people um, at all levels, much more than they're covered now by health insurance. All those very popular. And one of the things, by the way, that Democrats sort of, you know, shoveled into the speech uh, is, uh, again, incredibly popular, is uh, uh, making sure that uh, the price of uh, prescription drugs are cut. Um, um, and, and Medicare, you know, can, has, a, has a role in doing that, especially Medicaid as well. Um, but again, that that got buried in the speech and um, and is not being focused on very much. And I think that's a problem. I mean, you know, in the end, you know, Bill Clinton, who was no progressive for the most part, you know, right. the, the slogan of the night, night, his 92 campaign, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember. Uh, Barely. Was, 
was it's the economy stupid. You the know? economy stupid. And I think it's the it's the economic program stupid. Um, right. Which are usually key to winning or losing elections. Not the only thing, but but they're usually. Uh, and I think now we don't know what's going to happen with the war in, in Ukraine. I mean that could be a big issue too uh, by the fall. We don't we don't know what's going to happen with that. But but I think in the end. People want help from the government. If they don't get help from the government that they feel the government needs, if they feel they deserve, um, then they will vote against uh, those who are running the government. And right now, that's Democrats. But doesn't that just benefit Republicans all the time? Because basically what happens is they run, um, you know, when the Democrats are in power, they run against, like, everything the Democrats are doing, whether or not, like, it's good or bad. I mean, like, they ran against Obamacare, which, like, even objectively is, like, good for people. Um, so it, it feels to me like no matter what they're going to run saying that the government, you know, is incompetent and is doing too much and doing too much in, in an incompetent fashion, and they rail against it, and then they get in power, and then they do, you know, what they want to do, either dismantling the administrative state, which is what Donald Trump sort of pretended to do during his four years, or, um, you know, do things that are for their special interests and then either start wars, start recessions, um, mishandle pandemics, you know, just talking about the last few presidents that were Republican. Um, and then it flips back. And I feel like they never they they're out of power for a little while, but they don't suffer the consequences of the damage they do when they're in power. So it's mm -hmm. actually advantageous to them that Democrats, you know, when we're in power, we're always like active and trying to implement programs that are helping people. And then they're like, the government's doing too much, put us in power, they're out of control. And then they break it again. Like it's the sure, but, cycle. But, but I, think, I, think, I think there has been progress though. I mean, uh, a lot of Americans don't even think about a lot of the parts of the, pro, a lot of parts of the government that, that uh, democratic administrations and congresses have, uh, have put into place that uh, people just assume are always gonna be there like Social Security, like Medicare, like uh, the GI Bill, like the VA system, um, like the Civil Rights Bill. Voting Rights Act, of course, has been under attack. And, and that's, but, but again, that, you know, uh, for a while at least was, uh, uh, even Republicans supported it. Um, right. And, and, and things like, things we don't think about as much, like the FDA, you know, uh, the fact that you, when you buy meat, it's probably not gonna make you sick. That didn't used to be true, you know? Right. Um, or, or medicine, it's, it's supposed to do what, what it says on the label that it uh, is supposed to do. Uh, the NIH, you know, um, uh, funding research uh, into all kinds of, uh, of diseases, including, including um, uh, the coronavirus. Uh, so um, again, you know, part of it is maybe Democrats don't really talk about, you know, how many good things the government can do, has done for people. Um, and, you know, it's, we don't have as, as vigorous a welfare state, uh, or social security state is a better way to put it as they do in many European countries, but, uh, you know, nevertheless, it's a lot better than it used to be, you know, before the great depression, uh, and before the 1960s. So, uh, Republicans can't turn everything back and they don't even try to turn everything back. They, as you know, they, they mostly talk about culture, cultural issues, right? Right. They mostly talk about, you know, um, uh, abortion or, um, so-called, you know, racial divisiveness in schools, uh, um, transgender people playing sports and so forth, um, uh, immigration, which is a real issue, not just a cultural issue, but uh, they don't talk about the core uh, economic programs 
uh, and welfare programs that cost a lot of money that the government does provide for people because they know those are popular. So how, I mean, one, I would say that like also abortion and trans kids playing, so like the cultural issues are real issues for the marginalized people who are affected by the attacks on, on, on them. Like I'm not, how, I'm not saying they're not, I'm just saying that's what they talk about, yeah. Right, so, so how, do we, how do we recapture those issues? Like how do we make people understand that of course abortion is an economic issue, it's the most important economic issue most people ever face when and whether to become parents. Like, is there a way to, to put those put those issues back into the bucket of economic populism and making sure that people are allowed to live the lives that they want to live happily and you know, free from, from state oppression. I think we can try and people do try. I know people in the pro-choice movement you know, have tried to do that. Uh, and of course, you know, the people who hurt most by these laws in Texas and Mississippi and now Florida just passed yesterday um, are obviously poor women, uh, working class mm -hmm. women, um, younger women especially. Um, who can't, you know, fly to New York <laughs> or DC, right. you know, to get an abortion. Um, but, uh, you know, look, religion matters to people, obviously. Uh, and, and people who think uh, that, that abortion is murder, you know, full stop, are, you're not going to convince them. <laughs> of course. Uh, so, so um, you know, so people in the middle uh, that you have to try to convince. And again, you're not going to try to convince them by making them feel sorry for people who aren't like them. Um, you have to probably reach them the way, actually, you know, one, one of the ways that uh, um, the, the gay and, and, and lesbian movement, it used to be called, you know, um, mm -hmm. the gay too, is people came out to people in their own families, right? You know, yeah. they came out to their friends and their coworkers. And in that sense, maybe it's a, more, the, more the personal connection, people who've had abortions talking to people in their families and friends who are who are you know opposed to abortion and talking about that? I mean, I'm, look, I'm not a strategist, but but I'm just a historian. But but I think um, sometimes the personal connection um, is the best way to reach people. And I think it certainly helped with LGBT you know rights uh, yeah, in many ways. So um, you know, people that say, oh, you're gay. Well, maybe gay people aren't so bad. You know, I like you. <laughs> no, look at that. Right. Well, it's 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 so so true. I mean, the personal stories are the thing that connects people. It's you have to you have to appeal to people's empathy um and also just make them think about things differently that's what i yep. sort of i mean i guess that's my my whole world view is like if you if you make people think but just a little differently too you know if you get somebody to go oh i never thought about it that way usually you can that that's like it goes a long way into changing the the, the parameters of the conversation we only have one more minute so my last question is do you feel optimistic about the future? It's hard to say that on a Friday where we woke up to like check the news about the nuclear power plant on fire. Uh, but in the last minute, like, do you feel optimistic that Democrats, the new generation specifically, understands a lot of this and are at least working towards some of what you're talking about in terms of the message? Yeah, um, I like to say I'm hopeful, not optimistic. <laughs> I like that. Uh, There's a difference, but. But I do think yep. I do think. Look, in polls, young people are are more progressive than older people um, in general. Yeah. Uh, they are more concerned with climate change. They're more concerned, and they they understand the connections between these issues: the economy, racial justice, gender justice, and the and the and the climate. A lot of them do at least. Um, and so that, yeah, that's hopeful. Because look, 40 years ago, you know, uh, when Ronald Reagan was elected, most young people were Republicans. They supported. They were more conservative, and that's not true today. Um, and the more they organize, uh, the more they'll be able to shape the future. So in that sense, I'm hopeful, yeah. 
We can, uh, I, I'm gonna take that um, hope when I can't access optimism. I'm going, to, I'm going to take that with me. And I really appreciate that distinction, especially coming from, uh, coming from a historian. Michael Kaysen, thank you so much. The book is What It Took to Win a History of the Democratic Party. And we appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank, thank you, you so enjoyed much. it. We'll see. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Zerlina Maxwell, at Jess underscore MC, and at Signal Boost Show. 